Hello, everyone. Welcome to Michigan State University's Liberal Arts Endeavor, a podcast dedicated to the transformative power of our faculty research and pedagogy here at Michigan State University. In each episode of the Liberal Arts Endeavor, we offer an inside perspective on the research, teaching, and scholarship that are enriching the ways we think and act in a complex, interconnected world. I'm your host, Chris Long, Dean of the College of Arts and Letters here at Michigan State University. And in the studio today, I have the great pleasure of having Suzanne Wagner, who is Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the Linguistics Program in the Department of Linguistics and Germanic, Slavic, Asian, and African Languages. Welcome, Suzanne. Glad to have you here. Nice to be here. So tell us a little bit to start just about sociolinguistics. What is it? This is your area of specialty. So just for those who are not familiar with it. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I think in general, linguistics is something that people don't encounter. And it's important, I think, to just start by saying that linguistics is not the study of any particular language, but it's the study of how languages work in general. And so there are people who study linguistics who are interested in how sentences get put together or how children learn languages or how our brains process language. But I'm a sociolinguist. So as the name suggests, I'm interested in all of the social context in which language is used. And in particular, I'm interested in the things that vary in language. So at its heart, sociolinguistics is about choices. It's about understanding why people make the language choices that they do. And sometimes that's what they are. I might decide to switch into German all of a sudden, right? Or perhaps if I live in Canada, sometimes I'm speaking French, sometimes I speak English. And those are choices that I'm making based on the social context. It's appropriate to use one of those languages at a different time. It could be even more complex than that. Perhaps if I live in Belize and I'm a speaker of a language called Garifuna, sometimes I'm speaking Garifuna in my home, I might be speaking Belizean Creole when I'm with my friends, but in school I'm speaking English, right? So those are are fairly obvious choices. There are other kinds of relatively obvious choices, like perhaps I'm speaking mainstream American English one minute, and then I'm speaking African American English the next. So those are quite discrete choices, and they seem to be relatively conscious ones most of the time. The kind that I'm really interested in are the unconscious Mm. choices. So what happens when you have an array of options available to you? So effectively, two or more ways of saying the same thing, but you pick one of them. So lots of what I do is really just about probability, right? Mm -hmm. What raises the probability or the likelihood of somebody selecting one option rather than another? And in particular, I'm interested in what is it about the social context that would make that happen? So I'm interested in bits of speech, not dialects or language switching, but when people make very subtle adjustments. So I guess at that level, right, some of the more obvious things could be selecting words. So here in the US, people get quite passionate about whether it's pop or Mm -hmm. soda, right? Right. Or uh, whether that little gray bug that rolls up is a pill bug or a roly poly or a potato bug, right? But I'm really interested in these other subtler things. So why, if I'm listing something, Maybe if I'm telling you that I've gone to the store to buy apples, bananas, and pears, do I say, oh, well, I'm going to buy apples, bananas, and pears and stuff like that? Or I'm going to buy apples, bananas, and pears and things of that sort, mm-hmm. right? I've got some choices there. Why do I say I'm going to go to the store or I'll go to the store? Why do I say um, if I'm an American, which clearly I'm not, right? <clears throat> Why might I say something like, um, I hate that, 
versus I hate that, mm -hmm. right? These are really subtle things. So what I'm interested in is what makes us pick those options when there's not making, not making any difference in the meaning. If I say pop or soda, I'm referring to the same object. If I say I'm going to go or I'll go, I mean, I'll be doing it in the future, right? If I say I want a snack or I want a snack, same thing I'm referring to. And then what I'm really interested in, what sociolinguists like me are interested in, and this is really at the heart of my work, is how do those accumulations of choices, often the really unconscious ones, build up in a language and lead to a permanent change in the language, mm -hmm. right? So I think probably one that you hear a lot around you, and I do as well, is people introducing speech or thoughts with like. Mm -hmm. I'm like why am I even doing this podcast right? Right. rather than I thought to myself or I said to the Dean rather than unlike Dean Long. La, right. la, la. <clears throat> so it seems that young people have in a, in a sense less and less choice in this domain, right? They, they overwhelmingly opt for like even in quite formal situations. So it seems like that's an option that's winning over time. And eventually maybe some other options like say or think, think or go will drop out of the language. So that's the long-term view, right? Why, why, what is it that happens at the micro level from moment to moment, these little decisions that we're making without even really knowing we're making decisions that could have downstream consequences a generation or multiple generations or centuries from now in the language that we're speaking. And that's how we get from, you know, Beowulf and Chaucer mm -hmm. to the language that you and I are using now. Right. So that's really the backdrop for all the, the work that I do here is answering those questions. So how did you become interested in that whole set of questions? Well, I started out as a literature person. Mm -hmm. And when I was an undergrad, I took, I think, almost two years worth of medieval German literature. Uh -huh. And somewhere along the way, I realized that although I was enjoying the literature, what I was really more interested in was why different versions of the same poem from hundreds of years ago were slightly different. And it really depended on which monk, in which monastery, in which part of Germany, in which century had copied down the poem. And I think after a while, my professors really got a bit upset with me asking about the differences between manuscript A and manuscript B and manuscript C. And that was when I realized I should be taking a linguistics class. But I think if you ask most sociolinguists, they come at this from, from a personal place. There's some experience that they've had in childhood or young adulthood that made them really conscious of these language differences because, as I just said, they don't exist in a social vacuum. If I make a decision, however unconscious, to say something, people will notice. So, for example, I grew up in southeast England, mm -hmm. and I'm not from a very high-income background, but I didn't really have this driven home to me until one time I was talking to a woman who was from a higher social background than me. And I've got a relatively mainstream sounding accent. So I think she had pegged me as being perhaps wealthier and higher class than I actually am. Somewhere along the way, I was asking her about her house and about her garage. Mm -hmm. And she said, Suzanne, did you say garage? With this tone of utter shock. And I said, yes. And then I remembered, actually, for me, this is a variable. This is, I have two different ways of pronouncing this word in British English. I can either say garage or I can say garage, right, which is a little closer to the American garage. But what I had never really thought about was the fact that my garage option is the low-class one. Uh -huh. And it was this shibboleth that had instantly identified me as not belonging 
to the class that she had put me in. <clears throat> so some people have much more traumatic experiences to talk about than this, right? They've really come from very stigmatized dialect backgrounds and that's how they end up in this field. But for me, it was this combination of being interested in how literature had changed over time, but also being very aware of, for me, it was social class differences in language from early on. And then wanting to understand that more. And I think it's a great way to think about bringing together writing and speech, mm. people and science, cognitive science, social science, humanities, obviously, mm -hmm. that's why we're here. Right. Um, and think about all of the effects that that has on language, the way we process it, the way we perceive it, the attitudes we have to it, and then the, the way that our brains are really working with it. So how do you trace that in the oral tradition? I mean, the, the examples you gave in the first uh, description of your research mm. is really about how we speak in everyday language. And then you start talking about literature, and I could see how you can trace changes over time through mm. literature because you have the one of the affordances of writing is that it lasts, right? <laughs> unlike speaking. So how do you do that in your work now? I mean, obviously, now that we have technology and we can record and that sort of thing, you mm -hmm. can, but you're only talking a couple hundred years here. Right, exactly. So we've got a, a proxy route to understanding this. So one thing is we can use the evidence from the past in writing to give us some mm -hmm. sense of what changes are even possible. But in the present, if I want to capture a change that's going on, and I haven't got hundreds of time, years worth of time, and no one's going to give me a grant to study a change for 50 years, um, then I have to get at it from another angle. And so I make use of the present to explain the past or the future. And by doing a comparison of older people and younger people in the same speech community, I can get a sense of how the language is changing. And this works best, of course, for changes that proceed very rapidly. So mm -hmm. pronunciation changes are what I've been working on the most in the last few years because you can often catch them within three generations and see them get right through the population in that time. For that, we have to assume that the old people, whoever the, whatever age group that is in yeah. the community you're working in, the older people's speech hasn't changed all that much since they were young. We have to assume that they're a relatively stable benchmark. So actually, one line of my work is interrogating that assumption. Okay. How much do people change as they grow older? And that must depend in some degree on the degree to which they stayed in place. Yeah, exactly. So one way to control for that is to make sure you only record people who have not moved around very much. Right. Um, and then to expand the field of research beyond it to the people who have relocated. But at core, we want to know all other things being equal. Do you sound the same most of your life, apart from maybe adopting new words, right? But fundamentally, do you sound the same? The balance of evidence suggests, yes, you do. So we can relatively reliably take cross sections of the population across multiple generations and compare them with one another. And so it would be very clear if you and I were in such a study, right, that our children and our parents would sound different from us, that with respect to things like like versus say, mm -hmm. we'd be somewhere in the middle between, between them, right, in terms of our use of like to introduce direct speech. Um, so yeah, that's, that's probably the, the best proxy that we have. But this means going out and really talking to real people in their real communities about the things that they want to talk about in such a way 
that they won't reflect on what they're doing, right? right? And that's quite hard. You have to, you have to like conversation to yeah. do this work, and you have to like listening, um, and you have to really want to get to know a community of people. The work I do is not typically experimental. So lots of my students do experiments or surveys, but at core, what I'm most interested in is this thing that we're doing now, right? This human-to-human -human interaction and asking people about experiences they've had in their lives, things that are going on in their communities, anything I can do to get them to just talk freely without worrying about whether they've said running or running or something like that. The, this, the question of whether these choices are choices mm -hmm. or whether they're, well, to what degree are they conscious choices and to what degree are they responding to the context. I mean, mm -hmm. just recently in the news we had, we have a, a whole series of conversations around uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez talking about her code switching right. in her right. conversation and, and um, how she is naturally doing that mm -hmm. all the time. I mean, all politicians do that. Right. So how do you parse that out in terms of choices versus, or I mean, to what degree are these things conscious choices? That's a really hard question. Again, they're hard things to set up in labs, right? right? What you want there is a situation where you could separate Ocasio-Cortez's uh, performance, right? There's got to be some, all politicians are performing, and she's performing a particular identity, and there has to be some level of consciousness about that. But at the same time, she's also responding to her audience. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be difficult to separate those experimentally. So sometimes we just have to build this up case study by case study, which can be frustrating to other people in linguistics because we're such a case study driven yeah. discipline. But if you want to meet people where they are, that's what you've got to do. But I think this is at core a really cool question, right? To what degree... Do people make linguistic choices consciously or unconsciously? To what degree are these changes over long, the long term motivated by conscious choice? And this is where the murder mystery comes in, uh -huh. right? So when I'm talking to my undergraduates, I say, I like to think about language change, but I guess this is true of variation as well, as a bit like a murder mystery. So for a change to take hold in the language, there has to be both motive and opportunity, mm. right? Murderers have to have motive and opportunity. So that's where the, the, the motive has got to be social, right? Ocasio-Cortez has got to have a reason to want to sound the way she did while she was giving that speech, even if it was quite an unconscious one, right? I'm projecting my Bronx identity mm -hmm. in this moment, for example. But there also has to be opportunity and you can think of that as either a completely knee-jerk reaction to the context, which in this case was the audience she was talking to, or it could be something like the exposure that you have to these options. So it's not enough for me to say, I want to sound like the kids and I'm going to start using like all the time, right? I could try that consciously, but chances are I'm going to get it really, really wrong. Yeah. I'll be using it too much in the wrong places, for example. As long as I'm exposed to it enough, and I'm not resisting it, I'll adopt it. So in that sense, it could all be completely unconscious and that would still work. As long as I've got some unconscious social motivation for adopting a choice and I've got the opportunity to adopt it, it'll work. 
So in class this morning, for example, we were discussing the Queen of England. So there's a great study of Queen Elizabeth that tracks her speech from the 1950s until the early 2000s. And this paper, which was published in 2000, has the great title, Does the Queen Speak the Queen's English? <laughs> and the authors are asking, does someone like Queen Elizabeth even unconsciously pick up new options in the language? So as the community is changing the way it talks around her, as British English is changing around her over her long life, does she just carry on talking the same way the whole time? Or does she pick up on some of them? And you'd think the Queen of England would have the least motive <laughs> and perhaps the least opportunity. Perhaps she's living a fairly protected life. She's not exposed to that much. So we listened to some videos, or actually we watched some videos of the Queen delivering her Christmas speech, which when I was growing up was the punctuating event in every Christmas day. 3 p.m. every December 25th, everything would stop. We would watch the Queen give her speech on television. And it's a relatively nice experimental control for the researchers because she gives it every year. The topics are basically the same, state of the nation and so on. The audience is the same. It's just the British viewing public. She's always, you know, it's always scripted. She's always giving the same kind of speech in the same context. So we listened out in class for um, her pronunciation of words like happy and naturally and family. And the vowels we're interested in here are a and e at the end of the word. Now, when I say them, because I'm both young and not upper class. It's happy, family, and naturally. But the Queen in the 1950s was saying something more like happy, naturally, and family. So the researchers say, has she learned to sound like a slightly younger person and a slightly less classy person than the monarch over time? And it turns out she has. If you listen to her 1950s speeches versus the ones from recently, she has somehow unconsciously very slightly adjusted. So she isn't actually saying happy, family, and naturally. She's still saying something a bit happy, family, naturally, right? Doesn't quite sound like me, but she's changed. So we said, well, what could be the motive and the opportunity here for the Queen of England to make, the, to adopt these new, subtly different pronunciations? And my class were great today. They said, well, you know, the royal family needs to make itself seem more accessible these days. That's probably true. Perhaps she's got a voice coach also possible. Um, perhaps she actually is surrounded by younger people, right? She's in her 90s. Statistically, everyone around her is getting younger all the time, right? So she's being exposed more and more and more frequently to people saying ah and e, where she would say eh and e. <clears throat> so I think it's possible for anyone to do this without even really wanting to. And that's sort of fascinating. It's a fascinating aspect of human behavior that we can be on the one hand, so conscious of language, be able to talk about it as you and I are doing now, but we're also complete prisoners of our unconscious minds. Yeah, I have been thinking a lot about some of these kinds of questions. First of all, as a dean, everything you say or don't say mm -hmm. is parsed out. Secondly, also in a context like this with regard to a podcast, thinking about how you're responding, how you're beginning your responses, whether you're, how are you signaling to the listening audience that you're listening? Mm -hmm. So whether I say mm hmm or verbally say that or just shake my head at you, which I've been trying to do, <laughs> that doesn't come across in an audio file. Right. But being intentional about that in more focused ways has also, I think, changed my 
way of speaking. Mm-hmm. So there's so there's on the one hand very intentional new habits you're trying to cultivate. Right. One of which is to let the silence sit and not fill it with um or whatever I might tend to do. And then there are the subconscious or unconscious, depending on how we want to characterize those things, things that we do because we're trying to connect right. with each other in some way. And so all it's, it's, it strikes me as such a messy, but also so interesting in terms of a, a, of a topic of study. Absolutely. I think it's, um, it's akin to the same unconscious choices that we make when we put our clothes on in the morning. Some of those are conscious. You probably woke up and said, I'm the dean, I should wear a suit and tie today, right? But the exact tie that you chose, the exact suit that you're wearing is also part of this tidal wave of fashion moments that you and I are in that we are probably not even thinking about, the width of the lapels, the exact color and pattern and cut, right? Um, and I always say to my students, do you think that you choose your own clothes? Are you, are you in command of your fashion choices? And they say, yes. And then I say, well, how come most of you are wearing black leggings or jeans right now? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> right. Right? So, so yes, I think what's really interesting about these unconscious language choices is that they form part of a connection with other people, as you say. And there's always this trade-off between accommodating to others or to the larger cultural moment that you're in but also being yourself, putting together these pieces of language in a way that presents symbolically who you are and that that is interpretable to other people is also kind of fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. So when I was um, doing my dissertation work in Philadelphia, I was studying young women at high school and I had gone in expecting to look at some aspects of their vowel system. Um, And I had selected these women because they seemed to be socially relatively homogenous. They were all white. They were all at the same school. They're from largely the same socioeconomic background. They were the same age. But of course, what I had not factored in as a British person, and I know that you have some Philadelphia background yourself, so this will not come as a surprise to you, is how much they cared about being Irish or Italian American. Mm. They were not just white, right? This was a very stupid choice that I had made. (laughs) And furthermore, it turned out that there were really interesting, subtle differences in the way that they pronounced perfectly ordinary English vowels that were oriented not just to being Irish or Italian per se, but to the identities that go with those ethnic backgrounds in Philadelphia in that place at that time. So in Philadelphia, you've probably heard this, uh, people pronounce the I vowel more like oi sometimes. Mm-hmm. So you might be in a fight, for mm-hmm. example, rather than in a fight. Mm-hmm. So everyone was doing this in this school. But the Irish high school girls were doing this just a bit more than the Italians, particularly if they were really invested in being Irish, coming from an Irish neighborhood. And what was so fascinating to me was that it wasn't necessarily about being Irish that led this choice. It was about some social characteristics of being Irish-American in Philadelphia, like being tough, being uh, sort of relaxed and casual. The Irish girls were always characterizing the Italian girls as uptight and prissy and too worried about their looks, whereas with the Irish girls, you could always hang out. Um, 
At the same time, in the community over time, this pronunciation, this oi pronunciation, is more advanced among men than among women. So it seemed as if the Irish girls had attended to this distribution, this probabilistic distribution in the larger community, right? This is a, this is a pronunciation that is ever so subtly more associated with men than with women. To be really, truly Irish in this context, you have to be ever so slightly more masculine than the rather hyper-feminine Italian girls. And one way you can achieve that, one tiny, tiny way, one little piece in your symbolic practice is saying, oi, <laughs> foi, mm -hmm. a little bit more extremely than the Italian girls. It's one of the, the many, many components of building this persona in the, that particular social context at that time. And I think that's really fascinating. Absolutely, it is. The, those kinds of, I mean, you're talking about it as a choice. It seems to me that that's so much like, you know, the, you've said choosing clothes or mm -hmm. there's just so much in there that nobody is intentionally thinking I'm going to pronounce oi in a stronger way. They're just, that's just happening. Um, we had, uh, so growing up in Philadelphia, right. uh, I used to, when I went to Ohio for college, people would make fun of me because I said water, uh -huh. which I had to quickly unlearn. Hmm. On the other hand, I would pull it out sometimes when I wanted to be, you know, from the city. That was, gave me a little cachet uh -huh. in, you know, pretty rural Ohio uh, liberal arts college. So, I mean, it, there are dimensions that I can see being intentional in that same code switching way that we talked right. about. And not always for the obvious social reasons. Right. So for the same reason that it seems at first blush absurd that the Queen of England would change the way she speaks, right? She's got nothing to gain by changing. Those of us who are socially aspirational, sure, we all want to sound fancier. She's the Queen of England. There's nowhere else to go in, in that social hierarchy. But like you, she chose at whatever level of consciousness, a linguistic option that makes her sound less fancy, more authentic, right? So those choices, I think, are especially interesting when people want to assert their localness or some aspect of their identity that's not overtly or obviously prestigious. Um, and this answers a fundamental question for those of us who look at language change, which is why do these stigmatized things like water kick around in the language for as long as they do. Why do Philadelphians still say house instead of house, right? right? Why do they say... You know, eagles for eagles. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because it makes you sound like you're from Philadelphia. Yeah. For the same reason that saying foit makes you sound not Philadelphian. That already makes you sound Philadelphian, right? But you can even push it a little further and say, I'm a particular kind of Philadelphian, even though you don't realize that you're doing it. So you use the word authentic, mm. which I think is so interesting to think about what is authenticity and how does that play itself out when you, when you, I think you said something like that you want to seem authentic. And of course, seeming authentic is an odd formulation already, <laughs> already aren't right. you? Just isn't authenticity the nature of just what you and who you are. But of course, what and who you are is a fraught question already. And I have the sense that the kinds of connections that AOC was trying to make in code switching, and you know, you you heard it, you hear it in in Obama's language mm -hmm. too, as he's trying to connect with people in different registers. 
and I'm and I know that I do it all that we all do that and so it's but there's a way in which that can seem inauthentic if it's perceived as being done just for the effect right yeah that's a tough one I think When you meet someone for the first time, you're making a million judgments about them, especially if you can see them. And language seems to be something that we make a lot of judgments about very quickly. And yes, we've all got really good detectors for this. Um, and so it's a question of what you're licensed to do. And of course, if you're a female politician, you're not really licensed to do anything. You're damned if you do, you're right. damned if you don't, as AOC has come to learn, yeah. right? If you're too authentically uh, privileged sounding, then that's out of step with your roots. If you sound too rootsy, it's out of step with your perceived privilege. Mm -hmm. Can't win this at all. So, yeah, I think that's why in particular I'm drawn to these, these avenues of research that help us get more at these unconscious things and away from performance. But I do think you're right to say we should interrogate the concept of authenticity, not least because in my field from the 1960s onwards, we have noticed that there's been a bit of a privileging of working class speakers as being authentic, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's a rather patronizing view of individuals. Um, it's almost romanticizing working class speakers and saying they're the only real speakers without attending to the fact that there are different ways of being real. Um, and that you can be a real middle-class person as well, and you can be authentically middle-class sounding, just as you can be authentically Bronx sounding right. and so forth. In fact, we should do an experiment here on this uh -oh. podcast. I'm going to write down these words for you. We're going to find out if you're an authentic Philadelphian. Oh, boy. So so I, tell me. I've when, been away from Philadelphia for, for a yeah, long time, but, but I did grow up there, so I'm going to... now. But now you've got my whole my whole mindset is now to speak it in a Philadelphian way, so I better uh, just... Good, I primed you. Exactly. Okay. Right. I have to read these words. Yep, those words there at the bottom. Sad, bad, mad, glad, dad. No, dad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well. No, I'm not Philadelphian. Not Philadelphian I've gotten, enough. I've, I'm gone, gonna... I've gone to the Midwest. So you're <laughs> actually transitioning us to your mid-Michigan <laughs> research project. <laughs> so I was, a, oh, well, you know, this is the difference between what we can hear with the ear and what I can see with the right acoustic tools. Uh -huh. So my bet is that if we play back this podcast and I do a little analysis, we're going to see that you are, in fact, an authentic Philadelphian. What I was expecting here was something like this, and I'm not Philadelphian, so uh -huh. I'll do my best job here. I was expecting sad, bad, mad, glad, dad. Yeah. So what's really interesting in Philadelphia is that you have to know which of these ad words gets pronounced with an ad and which with an ad. Right. Right. And this is, in fact, the same vowel that I'm studying right here in Lansing, although the pattern for it is very different. But I will say, uh, because I want to hear about the, the Michigan vowels, the A vowel in particular, mm -hmm. but the, when, you, when I was listening to you pronounce those words with your Philadelphia accent, I was parsing those I, I can hear the different regions within philadelphia mm, interesting so you know sort of the northeast area mm -hmm. and and you know south philly those kinds of accents which are different than you know i grew up in northwest philly within the city still but in uh, in germantown and mount airy in that area which you're not going to hear sad 
No, but you might hear something ever so slightly in that direction. So that's why I think the acoustic analysis would show us that even though you were on the periphery of those pronunciations, they're there. And in fact, prior studies of those outer neighborhoods and up and down the social scale in Philadelphia have shown that all Philadelphians have this pattern. They just have it to different degrees. So everyone, if you have the only way you can know this pattern is to be raised in Philadelphia, ideally by Philadelphian parents. But if you don't, you get this wrong. You'll say sad, bad, mad, glad, dad, or you'll say sad, bad, mad, glad, dad, but you won't get those distinctions right. That we know for sure. So I'm going to go away and I'm going to get this podcast All given right. to me in a in a file and It'll check it available. out. It'll be available. All right, let's hear about mid-Michigan. Okay, so the same vowel uh, is changing in, in this area. And this is the vowel where we've been spending a lot of our time. So I've been working on this uh, for a few years now, both actually with people in Philadelphia where there's a change to that vowel going on and then with my students here in in Michigan. Okay, so the background here is that unlike in Philadelphia, traditionally in mid-Michigan and in fact in a lot of the upper Midwest, we should expect that a vowel to always come out as air, right? So it should be bad, that, snack, uh, dan, right? You should always get this slight air type pronunciation. And that is what makes this area unique in dialect terms. However, the majority pattern for this vowel across the US is that you only use this air pronunciation before n, m, and sometimes ng, right? So you might say dan, but dad. And so there'll be a more of an ear sound before the nasal consonant. That's what most Americans do, not Philadelphians. So when we look at the data, we've got interviews that include um, oral histories that were collected by various people here at Michigan State in the 1990s and the early 2000s. One of them is a professor of history here, Lisa Fine. Um, So they're interviews with former auto workers from Lansing Plants. And then we supplemented that with interviews that we did here with Michigan State students um, or young people who had gone to high school in the local area but were not necessarily going to Michigan State, maybe were at community college or some other college. So this is where we can do this comparison of older and younger generations. We've got some older recordings of older people, new recordings of uh, younger people. And what we can see is that in the past, people were saying snack and dayat and dan, but now they're saying snack that and Dan. So you're getting this nasal, non-nasal contrast. What's really interesting is that the change in that local accent seems to have happened after the baby boomer generation. And if we plot this onto historical time in the community, we can see that it's from that generation onwards that the auto plants start to become a declining industry in the Lansing area. And so we want to think about this change as being unconscious, although people in Lansing will sometimes say, I say Lansing, or they'll say something about their A's. What they can't tell you is this pattern that I've just described. This is sort of inaccessible, right, to non-linguists. So this change certainly seems to have been happening over, over the generations without people noticing. And so what we've been asking ourselves is, has this change been triggered by socioeconomic change in the community? If we go back to mid-century, there was a lot of local pride in being from here. You could be 
a local person with local social networks um, who had a good paying job and brought in a good salary, could own a home and a car. And those opportunities for many strata in the social hierarchy here have gone away. So one possible motivation for this particular change is that there's no or there's lessening motivation to sound like you're from here, even if you don't realize that what you're doing is making yourself sound like you're from here. We also know that access to education, particularly higher education, has increased during the same period of time. So we've got a kind of twin uh, set of motivations playing with one another at the same time. Um, so it sounds as if our young people are becoming more general American sounding and less local. The other thing they're doing, of course, is they're not saying pop so much anymore, pop and mom, mm -hmm. but pop and mom. That's all the other pronunciations going away. What's very cool is that this is happening all over the US. So the, these pronunciation changes that I've described have been described in bilinguists for the last 20 something years as you know, the can Canadian sound change or the California vowel shift or something like that. Now we're in a position to see that actually all the same thing happening everywhere across the US. And this might not seem surprising to the ordinary person. In fact, people say to me all the time, how come we don't all speak more like one another now that we have TV and the internet? That's a very understandable question. But actually, right up until recently, Americans really didn't sound very much like one another. And in fact, they seemed to be coming less like one another over time. Now we're beginning to see that, in fact, there's a generation of young people in America who are sounding more like one another. And what we can't establish with any real certainty is whether this is completely anecdotal. Some of these groups of people in different parts of the country have independently arrived at these pronunciations, or if they really are all part of some diffusion outwards from some central place. California would be one sort of obvious potential place. So we're actually finishing up revisions to um, a chapter in a book that will be published this year. We're writing the chapter on what's going on in Michigan. Other people are writing about this sound change that's going on elsewhere. Um, and the, it seems that Michigan is the most interesting case. Um, for all of these other chapters, the story is something like the vowel in pop and the vowel in thought have gotten closer together. So most Michiganders can distinguish between C-O-T and C-A-U-G-H-T. Californians can't. People in Washington state can't do that. Um, it seems that that has to happen first before any other changes to the system can happen. But it hasn't happened here in Michigan. So we're a little bit exceptional. No one quite knows why, but it's quite nice to be the exception sometimes. It seems like there are uh, multiple phases here. One is you have to show that the change is happening. You have to identify, here's the shift that's happened. And then you have to begin to try and figure out why. The why is really hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, so actually, we have, so I have several grad students attacking this from different angles. Um, so one student who'll be graduating this summer, she has been looking at the what, right? Mm -hmm. the, the who is producing which pronunciations over the generations. Um, another student is about to defend a dissertation proposal, and his proposed project will be more experimental. So he's going to be playing samples of people talking where sometimes they sound basically like an older Michigander, and sometimes they'll sound like a younger Michigander, except we'll keep the speaker constant, but we'll digitally manipulate the pronunciation. 
And Matt's going to ask them some questions um, designed to probe their attitudes to those speakers. So by manipulating these wells, can we get listeners to think of the speaker as sounding friendlier or more intelligent or more likely to work in an auto plant or whatever the questions are going to be? So that's one way of figuring out whether, as we look at different uh, ages of respondents, Maybe older people hear this older accent and think it sounds fine, but maybe we're going to find that at a certain point in the age range, the respondents will say, hey, that doesn't sound like such an attractive accent to me anymore. So that's one way we'll do it. Um, and then I have another student who is trying to figure out if you are a listener and you're living in a community where some people are saying pop and some people are saying pop and some people are saying pop, right? What do you do with all of that variation? How do you figure out what is the baseline? What's the mean? And the target is shifting all the time over the generations. <clears throat> so in particular, what do you do when you hear something that to you sounds like a real outlier, right? Someone says pap, what are you gonna do with that? Do you decide that it's a weird word like P-A-P? Do you decide that it's just something extremely emotional sounding that someone produced in the moment? What do you do? So he's got a series of really nice experiments set up to try and probe that question. So the, the, the why can be arrived at by a number of different means. We're gonna try and triangulate around this question. But for me, the really interesting one is this socio-historical story. Um, and for that, we need to do actually a lot more work just talking to community members. So that will be a, a later phase, perhaps a grant-supported phase, if we can be lucky enough. Yeah, let's hope so. So the... The linguistics program here at MSU, I've been so impressed with both the faculty and the students associated, the graduate students and the undergraduate mm. students. Could you talk a little bit just about the program? Sure. So um, we are a relatively small program, but with a very large major. One really interesting um, development in recent years has been that more and more undergraduates come to MSU already ready to declare a major in linguistics. The question is always, how did they hear about it? <laughs> it's not something they typically learn about in high school, although our professional association, the Linguistic Society of America, is trying really hard to get an AP linguistics off the ground. Um, so we have this growing major of really engaged undergraduate students. Um, we have a reputation for supporting undergraduate research. Thank you, College of Arts and Letters, for the funding that makes a lot of that possible. Um, and then in the graduate program, we admit somewhere between two and four PhD students per year. We attract a lot of international students. One of the nice things about linguistics is that it's multilingual, <laughs> right? And it's sort of, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be culture specific. Um, and then we have a master's program as well that attracts both external students and increasingly now uh, our own undergraduates who opt to stay on for an additional year to a year and a half to complete a master's degree. And during that period of time, they learn about all the fundamentals of how language works. How does pronunciation work, phonetics and phonology? How does sentence structure work? That's syntax. Morphology, how are words put together? What are all the pieces of words? Semantics, word meaning. Then the sociolinguistics, which we've already heard plenty about. Um, and neurolinguistics, the study of language in the brain. And then finally, child language acquisition. How do children make sense of any of the things we've just been talking about, given the extremely variable input that they get from all of the people around them? The way we find our way into language and language finds its way through us is an age-old and vital question, and it's really 
heartening to see the kind of work that you're doing and that your colleagues are doing that so many people here at MSU are working on. It's um, really grateful for that work, and thank you for being on the Liberal Arts Endeavor. It was a pleasure. Thank you. A big thank you for everyone here in the studio today. You can follow more of Suzanne's work, teaching and research, on her website, wagnersu.msu.domains, and on her Twitter account, at RedbirdRed. And lastly, I'd like to thank those involved with the Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast, including our technical producers, Dan Trago and Joey Deering, and our marketing director and producer, Ryan Kilcoin. And of course, you can access all of Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast at go.cal.msu.edu slash podcast. I'm Dean Christopher Long. I'll see you next time on MSU's Liberal Arts Endeavor.